welcome to Keyframes in Betweens, a mini podcast about anime. I'm your host, Jeff, and with me as always is Duncan. Hey there. Uh, today we are talking about the 1995 film by Mamoru Oshii, uh, Ghost in the Shell. Uh, a right classic. I think if you are mm-hmm. over the age of 30 and you have ev- even if you're if you're someone who doesn't watch anime, you've probably watched Ghost in the Shell. Um if you haven't or if you're under 30, go remedy that because yeah. it's a it's a very good movie as we are about to uh tell you. And even if you haven't seen it, you have probably seen a, a clip from it show, played to you by a friend who likes anime a real lot and wants to to espouse how this is a, a masterpiece and wants to, wants to uh, put on straight or intellectual airs which I think all of us do after the first time we watch it and now we can sort of after having watched it how many times have you watched it Jeff that's maybe an interesting point to to start do you have it do you uh, have a guess I how think... many times have I watched Ghost in the Shell probably at least 10 times yeah i think but around, that's around over, that region yeah f- same for me that's over 25 years so it's not like <laughs> it's, it's not an every it's not an every year thing it's an every other year thing <laughs> and then if you want to include all of the subsequent ghost of the shell stuff oh, which point. has a habit of remaking itself over mm. and over again uh, even more than that but we're not here to complain about new ghost in the shell we're here to talk about old ghost in the shell A brief synopsis. Uh, In the year 2029, uh, an elite team of super cops called Section 9 are working in the shadows of Japanese uh, politics, doing the dirty work that nobody else can do. And then one day, they find themselves wrapped up in a plot by other rival organizations in the government, which culminates in a seemingly sentient AI revealing itself and asking for asylum and specifically seeking out uh, General or uh, Major Kusanagi, who mm-hmm. is a full prosthetic cyborg who has been sort of quietly wondering about her own existence as of late. Um, and then the shady government uh, bureau that accidentally created the ai wants it back and they have a big gunfight at the end mm-hmm. um and that is that that is the very much the short strokes of what happens in this movie it is a deceptively simple movie mm, for yeah. as complex as the plot can be to follow especially the first first time or first five times or first 10 times you watch this movie <laughs> every time i watch this movie i understand it a little bit better and it has a lot of high sort of like high concept philosophizing yeah. but it also does not really go out of its way to tell you specifically what's happening and it can be a little bit hard to follow sometimes <laughs> i wonder if um part of its uh success especially in in the west comes from basically that sort of desire not to be all explosions and crowd pleasing to be like overtly intellectual and like mm-hmm. for people to I, I sort of half joked about how how it's a movie that people use to dress up themselves with pseudo uh, intellectual airs but i do think like part of its success comes from being something which you can start to think about deep things because of watching i i think it's it's uh, and we'll get onto this uh, mm-hmm. deeper. It's very much a, a film of questions rather than answers. Mm-hmm. And I think also part of it mm. is that it is a blazing fast 82 minutes long. Like compared to even, you know, to, to any other Ghost in the Shell property, this is the most compact and yet it does not feel truncated and it does not feel overpacked. The The plot jumps from place to place to place and it puts a lot of trust in the audience to be able to follow what's happening um this actually might be a movie that's easier to follow as a dub because of how many little sort of incidental statements Mm. are made to sort of help you follow along what's happening uh like there's a sequence early in the movie where we are introduced to a secretary who's having her brain hacked one of the 
one of the big concepts of Ghost in the Shell in general is the idea of cyberization. Uh, we've been able to transfer our brains into basically plug and play brain cases that could be plugged mm -hmm. into very human looking bodies or very inhuman looking bodies. However, this has opened up the human brain to cyber attacks, uh, which is what Section 9, this squad of super cops, sort of specializes in. And we are uh, introduced to a secretary who is having her brain hacked. Uh, there is a process called ghost hacking, which is basically taking over somebody's brain, changing their memories, mm -hmm. and controlling their, auto, like their, their body movements. And this particular secretary happens to be the secretary of a high-ranking uh, government diplomat who is in uh, yeah. talks with a foreign dictator who is trying to get asylum. Mm. Like, this is where, like, the complicated politics, like, they don't really matter, but every, everything in this movie is handled yeah, with, like, the true. amount of gravity that the character is involved would have for it and so we are told all about the gavel republic and how you know the delicate social uh, upheaval that's happening there and what the government is you know what should they do all of this doesn't really matter because this is basically just a breadcrumb for yeah. the team to follow to find out who is hacking this brain uh it turns out it is a garbage man who is yeah. driving around tokyo or i guess it's not technically to tokyo in ghost in the shell it's some kind of super city that i mean i whether we call it Neo Tokyo uh, is uh, is one is one of those things. It's like that's a, a term I think first. Yeah, I think I think first comes from Akira, or, or certainly appeared in Akira. And I think like this idea of of Tokyo sort of being becoming flooded yeah. and sort of then rebuilding itself on some sort of bund in in the bay is is often one you see in um futuristic anime where like the old city becomes like dilapidated and a new gleaming city rises up somewhere mm -hmm. and yeah so they they track down this garbage man who then leads them to this mm. hacker who has one of the cooler gunfights in the in the movie and so on and so forth and all of this is somewhat just sort of given to us. We're not really told how this relates to anything else in the movie. You kind of have to pick it up with context clues because we're told sort of in passing that uh, like section six, a different branch who is in charge of diplomacy is, you know, you know it, one of them lets slip that, you know, if we had our driver, there's, we would just find a reason to get rid of this guy because we, you know, if we give him, uh, we give him cover, we're going to lose support in some things. If we don't, we're going to lose support in others. So if he just like, we, if we just like had a reason to get rid of him, you know, that would be, you know, so much simpler. And then, you know, lo and behold, this brain hacking happens. It leads, you know, it's this mm. dictator is implicated in it and they're able to get rid of him. Easy peasy. And so like this, this whole sequence is probably, probably a third of the running time of the movie of like chasing down this lead of what's going on. And it really just sort of trusts you to go along with it. Like at no point are we sat down. It's like, oh, this is what happened. And this is what happened. And this is what happened. Because when we find out, you know, that all of this was, you know, happened to be a plot by section six to implicate the dictator mm -hmm. so they can get rid of them using their secret AI, which has gained sentience, which we are introduced to shortly thereafter. <laughs> you just kind of have to like put those pieces together. Like maybe, maybe it's just that I'm dumb, but I've, I literally did not <laughs> understand these connections until this most recent time watching it. Yeah. <laughs> I was just kind of like, wow, cool gunfight. Well, like the actual plot. I do goes think like this head. is a <laughs> film which does, does very much live on its, its sort of, um, its vibes, its atmosphere. Um, like it's, it has like a really interesting opening two scenes. Like you have that, the first, the first true scene in the film, which is pre-credits, which is uh, with the, the assassination of the um, the foreign diplomat by by the major, and that that scene has a very specific job. That scene's job is conveying the rules. What are the what are the rules of engagement? Sort of almost literal because they're sort of uh, of they're outlining the sort of problems with diplomatic immunity and all these things and also revealing the major like literally she's introduced to us as a woman and immediately we're then shown that 
okay, she's not quite, she's not human. And we don't yet know that she's a cyborg or any of that stuff, but immediately there's this um, uncanny put look to her, like she's uh, shown naked, but she doesn't have, she's as anatomically correct as a Barbie doll. And it's immediately setting off this, this, this slight disquiet, like, okay, so who or what is she? And that that scene is all about the plot concerns, whereas what follows it, the title sequence, is like pure, pure, pure vibes, like no, nothing more than like one of, and one of the most iconic title sequences in, if not the most iconic title sequence in films, like like full stop, like it, it's it is it is. I I've struggled to think of something which. Uh, tops it. It's this scene where we see the construction of a cybernetic body, and it's fascinating. It is genuinely like the word fascination. Fa- fascination is is really overused, but like this pure sort of way you can't look away as you see this this body, this this thing which is recognisably human, slowly being constructed, like going from parts to a this what we think of as a person like and that's re- really disturbing because we we've never seen a person as anything other than whole like a person is a p- person and it's immediately setting out this this idea which the whole film's gonna follow through on of um so we've sh- we've now constructed a body and it's just a body what does that mean like what does it mean to have a body without something connected in it what makes a person as opposed to a body, and that the fact that from that, while while the title the music, which in itself is amazing, like this, would you call it choral? Um, it's yeah, I would say it's 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 somewhat choral, but it's also a very you know it has a very Eastern vibe to it. Like it is not like a like a like a Gregorian chant. Cuts from that to uh, uh, Major Kusanagi waking up in bed, and the, the immediate question we it, it implies is: Is this her dream? Mm-hmm. And then that, and then immediately that leads on to further questions, <laughs> because like if if the what if you are dreaming of like mm-hmm. of a birth of a body, and this is your body. What is that a real memory? Is that an imagined memory? All all these questions, and I th- I think that that um, that immediately is something which when you first see it, you I think you just see it as, as Chrome. It's it's got like kind of the first time I saw the film, it was like oh wow that's 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 really cool. It's cool cool robot body. Wow cool robot. Um, and then all these years later, it's like okay th- <laughs> that really is its op- opening statement. It's it's. It's out outlaying its its interests, and from there it's going to going to elaborate on them. Mm-hmm. And that's one of definitely one of the strengths of Ghost in the Shell in general is <laughs> that it definitely succeeds on the wow cool robot level, and while still having that deeper philosophical sort of bent to it, um, but also. Like the like like the, the like what you were saying, the simplest explanation could be that it is Chrome. We know that the Major's body is mass production. You know, it's it's very advanced, but it is by in no means unique. Uh, we know that the the AI that becomes sentient escapes the net by jumping mm-hmm. into another body, uh, which is just being you know churned out in the factory. And until you said it, like it never occurred to me that it would be. A memory of the major, yeah. and and that sort of ambiguity is something Ghost in the Shell loves as well. Um, but I I do th- feel like it it has this this tendency to use questions to book bookend and well not not to bookend to to, to book, well to both bookend and open um, and different arcs in the story. Like first we, we when we get introduced to the inter- interpreters and we're told okay her ghost's being hacked. 
what's a ghost? Like a ghost is a spooky thing which goes woo. But it's, it's so what's a, what what is a ghost in this context? And we we sort of get that revealed in the the subsequent um, revelations of what happens to once your ghost is hacked because they're trying to hack her but they haven't yet succeeded. But two pe- two people who they have succeeded on is the 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 garbage man and the kind of uh, low life hacker who we see in the 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 arc you you were talking about the first the tracking down of of what's going on with this this first hack, and it it. Because it turns out, of course, that both of them have been hacked themselves. They they are puppets of a grander pu- puppet master, um, who is in turn out there doing who we who is kept um, deliberately vague at this at this point. Instead, what we're left with is the section nine sitting down with the the them and like brutally like telling them. All these things you think you are, you are not. Like you think you're a, like the the ha- the hackers. Like I'm I'm never gonna give up my uh, contacts info. You you can't make me talk. And uh, Bato, um, the the majors sort of, he's he's we'll, we'll get on. To, Bato is is sort of um, initially outlined as just kind of like the muscle of the of the of the group he's he's much more than that but that's that's what we the impression we get of him initially and he he just like turns and to this guy who who's like done the the, you know the typical thing a a criminal does when they're captured i won't talk copper i won't talk and he's like um why would we want you to talk when you don't even know your name and he just it just cuts to the guy and he's like oh shit Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah and it's like in terms of like comeback lines and for want to have it like that's kind of that's like shows the stakes are something very different from what we thought and i absolutely love that that line i think it's amazing writing and mm-hmm. it'll probably turn out the japanese original is completely different but i i, I love that that i love i love it it just feels like so it cuts down to the core of, of this thing and and in, in and to the the disquiet and the the horror of this this idea that your your memories can be hacked something they they double down with with the, the when they're interviewing the garbage man because they're, they're he's throughout this chase sequence early on we see him going going around his daily business mm-hmm. as picking up garbage with his co-worker and like going ah oh, come on you, you I, I've got to go. I've got to help this hacker out because I I have to get back with my ex-wife and so I can see my kids. Do you want to see a photo of him? And he's he's like constantly doing this, trying to show his his co-worker who doesn't want to have anything to do with it. it his, his this photo which is he treasures of his his family, and we we get to the um, scene where he's being interrogated and and it, we just find out that it's just a picture of him. There's there's he has no family. He has no daughter. Yeah he. He never had an ex-wife. He all these things are things which have been written in him, and this is something which is revisited later on. There's a horror to that. There's a definite horror to that, because they tell him very uh, nonchalantly mm. that you know we have no way of fixing your memory. You will just have this memory forever, and it also lends weight to the horror of that. This is basically just a plot to create, you know diplomatic ease for the government you know people's lives are being toyed with and thrown away you know because they don't want to deal with the paperwork of mm. of resolving these diplomatic problems and that, in other that's, ways. that's like the first question it sort of asks like how much of what we are is dictated by our memories and that meshed in in its plot structure mm-hmm. with what can the puppet master do like those two questions are it's both its question and its threat. The puppet master, can, how much of us is determined by our memories, and this is something he can change, and that and that changes him from being just a hacker to this kind of exist, not an existential threat to humanity, but to an individual. He is an existential threat because he can re- basically rewrite who you are. He can remove mm-hmm. all the things which make you you. And the s- second question it sort of postulates is 
what if you are only memories? What if you are only information? And that, that is what um, the puppet master is revealed to be. He he says he is not an AI. He's he's something more, born in a like this in the sea of information. But we we are led to believe he is some created from a program at least. Like he he is some sort of consciousness generated from a, a program, which has mm-hmm. now found its way out into the net and. It's it is now a consciousness completely divo- devoid of a body. Like this, everything we saw in the the start of this this uh, sh- this thing with the, the construction of this body, like this is the opposite of that. That is that was looking at a body as a like a as an object. Like a we often talk about uh, objectifying the body, like of how just different parts of people are fetishized and in that opening s- sequence it was just a, a pure object pure um without anything any personality behind it and now we're introduced to personality without um manifestation like that is an, another big question which i none of us obviously have an answer for <laughs> but it's a interesting question to pose to people and yeah and there is a another scene i earlier on when like you know one of the few times that you see the major and bato not on the job mm. uh the yeah. major likes to go scuba diving in a body that sinks like a stone something that bato brings up immediately and says you know <laughs> if your tanks fail like what happens to you and she's like well i imagine i would die <laughs> and she starts wondering you know you know, we've we've traded in so much of our humanity for our abilities, mm. like for our enhanced physical abilities, for our, you know our enhanced mental abilities. You know, we can have our memory outside of our body. We're capable of processing information mm. much faster than a normal person. However, we are owned, you know, bodily at the very least by the government. If we quit, we would have to turn everything in, and what would be left of us? And the major is starting to doubt. You know do I even have a brain in here? Like I've never seen my brain. I assume I have one and maybe she- I don't have one. Who knows? <laughs> and it's like, well, I really don't have an answer to that. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. And when she encounters the, the puppet master, you know, like you were saying, he is the exact opposite. He knows he has no body. He is nothing but mm-hmm. a consciousness. You know, he, pos- you know, he posits, you know, I think therefore I am. He has no way of proving his sentience. Any, you know, to the same degree that any individual does not have a way to objectively prove their own sentience. And that is sort of at the core of what the ghost in the shell is about. Like for all of the, uh, like all of the political intrigue and for all the action, it is fundamentally like a philosophical work Mm. about identity and about its intersection with technology. And in that it is a, very special work like it, it like it's left a huge footprint on mm-hmm. culture in general uh like the matrix you know in particular is mm-hmm. something that was directly inspired by ghost in the shell as has been mentioned on the show mm-hmm. previously uh for better or for worse because there are a couple of scenes of ghost in the shell where it is just the major or the ai philosophizing for minutes at a time yeah. directly into the camera I, I th- which you know some of that carries over to the matrix as well for you know and with the same sort of like you know mystification of like i don't understand this therefore it must be smart therefore <laughs> i think i enjoy this or i think it's stupid like i'm, I'm a big Com- uh, proponent of um, show don't tell and like I think that and I think for a while like a lot of my criticisms around um, Ghost in a Shell was that it tends to sometimes slip away from that and, and talk a, a little bit too much but I think I've over time I've become a lot more forgiving of those moments because I think when you are actually tuning the because you've seen it a couple of times and you've actually only half paying attention to what you're saying you start noticing that the th- the way that they're being presented the, the way the scene's being framed there's actually a lot being told to you visually as well it it isn't just them monologuing there's there's stuff going on and i th- i think that's that has took my appreciation of it and made it a lot higher than it used to be 
that it isn't just empty philosophizing. Something I'm not sure we can fully say of its its sequels and certainly of its derivatives. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I, th- I think it, it it definitely is a foundational work in the sort of cyber like between I'd say like between this Gibson and like Blade Runner, like you have like three of the the sort of foundational cyberpunk works and. And and when we say this, like specifically this movie, because in a in a mm. way that isn't yes. really doesn't really happen anymore. The adaptation of Ghost mm, in the Shell mm, is mm, wildly mm. divergent in terms of very at the very least tone, but also just in general like preoccupation. I think I think I think it just has a completely different preoccupation. Like in the the manga is mostly the, the those questions are not the foreground; they're the background. Whereas in the the, the movie, they they are the foreground. Like in the, the manga, thinks that the political stuff and the cool gunfights is is the main yeah. thing you're here for. But the uh, the f- film thinks they're the the backdrop behind which this these questions are asked. And I, th- I think that that is that's a that's a big big difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. In the manga, Nasumune just loves to fill the margins of every page with little technical explanations or <laughs> just telling you what's happening in the scene because like, Oh, this was hard to draw. So this is what's happening now. Whereas this has a much more coherent story that it wants to tell. And it, for better, or for worse, it also gets rid of a lot of the humor. Uh, it, it takes itself very seriously. Like that is, that is my, my one sort of, gripe with Oshii's uh adaptation of Ghost in the Shell is that for better or for worse he completely relegated it to being a very self-serious work and as it as it's continued and as it's gotten more self-referential and self-reverential that has not done it any favors in the long run shall we talk a little about the the cast of characters okay so the cast of characters i think is one which benefits from being quite compact like the it's not a big ensemble cast it is basically centered around uh, the major herself bato and to an extent uh uh mm-hmm. who has a very specific role both within the show and within section nine itself and it's interesting because that's a role which uh, the major says he's been specifically picked for, which yeah. is that he is very much someone who is everything they are not. He is mostly human. He has a family, a life. <laughs> mm, yeah, a, fam- a family and a life. But and, like t- to me, it's kind of attachments, I think, is, is the thing I think he mostly has, which they don't. Because the major is an incredibly self-aware individual. She is aware of her own flaws and problems in a way that most people just aren't. Like, she can say, okay, what we need so that this unit operates well is, is someone who has these attachments to his family, his, his like, friends, and because she fundamentally doesn't seem to have any friends, apart from maybe Bato, mm-hmm. who I characterised him as the, the big lug the, the sort of the muscle of the thing and uh, that does him a bit of a disservice because what he's actually there for is he in another way also provides something she lacks which is Bato is incredibly emotionally open mm-hmm. like the prototype of the, the muscle in the thing is like they're typically like stoic men of steel who just like whereas Bato is, is like are you okay? Yeah. Uh, are you worried about something? Are you is this are you doing this for a reason? Like he's incredibly he is open and he he will ask questions and he's worried about his his co-workers in a way that the major shows no inclination to do so mm-hmm. yeah like he's if you've ever seen a picture of bato like he has two mechanical eyes and yet he somehow manages to have more humanity in his eyes than the major does who has perfect human looking <laughs> eyes who looks like a barbie doll the whole time i think by design yeah. because you get the sense that she she may be an empty shell like the the way that she worries whereas bato absolutely like he cares about his co-workers like you were saying like the major doesn't really think twice about her body for her it is a tool that she is very good at using but doesn't really care about when mm. she wears her therm optic camouflage which allows her to mm. you know look invisible in plain view she's usually you know 
butt naked. When she tracks down that hacker earlier in the movie, she has a you know, a very cool kung fu fight in sort of ankle deep water. And when she's finished, Bato comes in and you know she's still you know mostly naked, and he takes his jacket off and drapes it over her shoulders, and she doesn't even yeah. really react to yeah. it. But like no, no acknowledgement at all. Yeah. Uh, and then similarly, you know, after the the puppet master tries to come in from the cold, gets snatched up by the mystery bad guys. The major has to chase him down and have a big fight with a tank monster. <laughs> again, she, like her body is destroyed during this fight. And, you know, she is stripped down again to do her camouflage thing. And Bato, while he's like trying to save her life, takes the time to take his jacket off and cover her up again. <laughs> yeah. This, this, this whole thing which we get with the opening sequence where, which is revealed to maybe be the major's point of view, that the major is looking at her own body and she's seeing it as an object. Mm-hmm. When they're they're sitting on on the boat and she's getting changed, she's about to get changed out of her swimsuit. Bato turns, sees she's about to get naked, and he's he's immediately embarrassed and looks away. Yeah, and so and the immediate difference is Bato doesn't see this as an object. She he sees it as a person immediately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? and there's all all the things that come with that it immediately tells us so much about how like all the fluffsizing they do on that boat tells us. Not necessarily any more than that one one moment and tells us about the major state, like how she just sees her body as a, th- a thing and she has no attachment to it mm-hmm. and maybe even feels dis- dissociated from it in, in a way like it's that um, that she she doesn't feel like this is her. Like, I wonder if like this is something which someone who is struggling with their own identity and is for instance trans might look and find an emotional core to like i can think of so few examples in media where someone's disassociation and um or almost alienation from their own body is even conceived as a notion well i mean one of the primary derivative works from this is the matrix and i'm sure the wachowskis could absolutely illuminate you on that fact i believe they have done so many times i'm sure ben will be able to track something down for the the show (laughs) notes (laughs) i think they have explicitly said that the matrix anyways is a trans metaphor if nothing else okay it's just such a a concept which most people associate what they are so strongly with their with who who that how they are born and who they are like it's it's something we don't question most of the time and so when when a work comes up and asks us to question why we feel that way that's that's a, a concept which really hasn't been around in uh, media much and i think that's a something which over time has become more important than ever like and not just from a philosophical one just from an emotional one to, for mm. people to think about what it would be be like to do that which which kind of in a strange way brings me on to the place where all this takes place. Like we we've talked about how it, it in some ways it is the classic cyberpunk landscape. It's this city of highs and lows of like gleaming skyscrapers and sort of like bustling dirty markets. Like I could be describing Blade Runner there, mm-hmm. but I think the one one of the things which distinguishes it from from those is the presence of water. I think this is something which shows up in a, f- a few of Oshie's uh, works, like. When we see the major on on a boat journey through the city, it is very much building this mood of sort of melancholy and disassociation where she is part of this city, but she's also not part. She will never... Mm -hmm. Well, she's passing through it like a ghost. Yeah. Yeah. She is, as you say, it's all ethereal to her. She has no connection to any of it. And this 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 moment when we find out that she is a mass production, like in just a, a moment you could blink and miss, where she looks up and she sees herself. Yeah. At that moment, she she doesn't quite double take, but it's it's what maybe the closest we see to we get to seeing her feel emotion in the whole whole film, where she's there's sort of a look of not quite quite worry, but like odds disquiet to her, which she mm-hmm. normally doesn't show, like. Like if you ever saw a doppelganger of yourself, like imagine how strange that would be. Yeah. That's on top of her own issues with this body not being hers. And to see someone else inhabiting that same body, that further pushes her malaise deeper and more profound. Yeah, I think something that is brought up in later works, um, but not necessarily explicitly in this movie, is that 
her body is more or less in the looks department, just left at default settings that people mentioned, like, you know, do you want to change anything about it? And she's like, no, nah, it doesn't matter. It's fine. And so even more so she is disconnected. You know, she doesn't even see her physical body as being a part of her identity beyond it just being this thing that she inhabits. And something that has only just occurred to me and probably should have occurred to me, you know, as much as this movie is about the intersection of identity and technology, it's also because it's anime and all anime is about this, about connection, the connection and uh, diversification. Them human bonds. Yep. Uh, like the major was saying, you know, Togusa represents something that is somewhat unique on the team in that he is mostly human and that he has a mostly human life aside from his job. Bato, we see later on just sort of hints that these guys live like Arnold Schwarzenegger commando. Like, you know, he's he's living, <laughs> you know, off the grid. He's got safe houses everywhere. He's got stashes of weapons and money in random places, you know. And of, of course, the government could fly in, in a helicopter and bring him in for one last job but like he is more or less not part of society and when the puppet master contacts the major he tells her that part of the reason he wants to do so is that you know he is a computer program he has the ability to change other people he has the ability to copy himself indefinitely but he has no way of reproducing biologically he has no way of introducing diversity to himself on his own and part of what he wants to do is to connect to the major and to become something you know to combine them and become something entirely new something that the major eventually agrees to i think because like you were saying she feels as the puppet master does separate and apart from the world without connection and this is a yeah. way of re-entering the world you know as a new person you know at the very end of the movie uh you know she narrowly escapes being destroyed by the bad like section six guys she wakes up in another body the the first one that Bato was able to get, you know, which happens to be the, of a child. And he's like, this is not my taste. This is just the only thing I could find. She's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And for the first time, we sort of see her look enthusiastic as she's looking over the city and says, you know, the, you know, the, the net is vast and infinite. And, you know, which becomes sort of a, a tagline and is reproduced over and over again. Yeah. Just sort of ad nauseum. Slowly loses more and more of its meaning. Yeah. And impact. But, you know, as... For for her, that's the first time that because you know she's she's combined with the puppet master, she has this new life. She's sort you know she's sort of ascended, but she's also you know seems to feel like she has a life for the first time, and she is impressed by the world more so than just being a hitman for whoever happens to be paying her <laughs> paying her wage. That is the a far more optimistic re reading than I, I get from it at times. Like it's the ending of Ghost in the Shell is centers around after after this big fight with a spider tank, the major and is basically in conversation with the puppet master and is eventually persuaded to merge with him somehow. Mm -hmm. And that I find a really deeply disquieting scene at, at times because first you have this moment where she sw switches bodies where she goes from the remains of her body to the remains of the the body the puppet master has um hijacked and you get this sort of feeling of paralysis where she's sort of in somewhere and she's oh, all right i've got control of the the optic things i but she can't make it talk. She she's only communicating uh, with Bato through a, a, a link, and she she's kind of like trapped in this this body. While that's happening, the uh, puppet master has took over her body, and is speaking through her her body. And to to most people, that's a, the thought of someone else speaking through your body is quite a horrific thought. Like when you think of the sort of fiction that shares these conceits we're talking eldritch horror basically mm -hmm. and what you bring up there is like a re really interesting view that this this is a genuine happiness she she feels at the end she at the end she really has found a way to connect and to to fill in these gaps she is so aware in herself mm -hmm. but another part of me watches that conversation and thinks the puppet master is being hella manipulative <laughs> to her like when someone is telling someone exactly what they want to hear it is rarely a good sign it is rarely a sign that they have good intentions there's this one line 
it really does seem like you get all the benefits of this and and there's the the VA's performance at that time definitely does feel kind of nervous like this isn't an easy thing for her to do this isn't like some triumphant ascension to a, a higher being this is what if there's nothing of me left is that a risk i'm willing to take and then in, in the end maybe it's it's hopeful that she she says yeah that's a risk i'm willing to take and the major and the puppet master seek cease to exist and something else walks out into the world they tell us that it's it's not the major and it's not the puppet master neither of those exist we don't know who who that is walking out into the into the world smiling so yeah that as a ending it's it's as ambiguous as the rest it's it's leaves so so much open like who is looking out of those eyes as as the as we swoop over this cityscape at the end it's, and so so i think it's its ending is a good place for us to leave the the themes of the show because I like that it it leaves those questions. It, it once again ends with a question. I f- I feel I I don't, mm-hmm. don't know if you'd agree with that. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah, yeah, I would agree. <laughs> so I, I, like now we will have uh, my my traditional Duncan wants to talk about the the craft of of the sh- show <laughs> moment um, because. Oh, yeah, this proper golden age anime. Oh, and, yeah. yeah. Like, remember, Oshi is good at movies. Like, he, like, yeah. Like, Pat Labor 2, this, like, Innocence, if we, like, Ghost in the Shell Innocence, mm. if we ever talk about that. Mm. Like, it's just so packed with so much just visual luster and craft. And it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous thing to watch. Every time you watch it, there'll be something different you'll pick up. And the thing which stood out to me this time was the optical camouflage. Now, in itself, the effect is is a little dated. Like it's a, it's a shimmering effect, a little bit of distortion placed in in the over the the lens using early CG to sort of distort an image and create create the shimmer. But what actually stands out is that you're animating an invisible person, and the, the way they they sell that is they sell it by everything that goes on around that silhouette, mm-hmm. like you're implying the existence and nature of something by its impact on its environment that as they run through all these the streets and they barge through people and like you are getting the weight and speed and everything of this object which we just cannot see and like that is describing something without showing it is is pretty good stuff Mm -hmm. I, i would say yeah when she's uh when kusanagi is fighting the uh the hacker in the puddle and she's like throwing him in joint locks and tossing him around. And there's a point where she slams him into the ground and the water sort of like makes her optic camouflage flicker. And, you know, she briefly casts the shadow, like just little things like that. They're so cool. Yeah. And, and uh, in similarly in the spider tank uh, fight where, when you just get this, this little, little thing of, of her, her of these footsteps going across the the floor as she she jumps down and and then just as she launches herself into the air the impact of her like uh arriving on top of it and then 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 a moment of almost real body horror yeah. animation like when she's the major is is on top of this this spider tank which it is like exactly what it sounds like it's a tank with spider legs and um she's trying to tear open the the hatch to get at the driver and she is like you you know how like in any any action film a hero has to do something which is physically taxing and not strain mm-hmm. but here it doesn't stop there you you see a person's pushing their body past what it can endure like yeah. you'll never see a human go pull pull something so strongly that they will shatter their bones and tear their arm off doing so yeah like 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 the musculature in her back tearing as she's straining to pull this thing off is just yeah proper like you were saying proper body horror yeah and it, and it once again shows us like n- n- no human can do that just because we ca- we fundamentally hit a pain threshold where you you cannot force your body to go past this it's it's truly horrific and like the way her body so as the muscles are sort of rippling and tearing as she's 
that is wonderfully horrid animation like mm-hmm. once like again we come back to like because of this being a show which has this like sharing things with like weird fiction and uh cosmic horror of, of like of bodies distorting and breaking as something which doesn't care about pain uses it it makes the major very alien at times like Mm. it it demonstrates once again that she is already not human in many ways her belief that she is separate from society is something which is justified in the way that she uses her body it's it's it is inhuman in in the most literal and graphic way. Mm-hmm. Any any other uh, particular shots or scenes which stand out to you? Um, there's there is a like uh, there's like the the classic Oshi like trick of taking a minute to just kind of drive through the city through the sci-fi city and show yeah. you what's happening in the world. We, you know, this is like a quiet moment where the major is just sort of traveling around looking around like that the music is playing that we were talking about earlier and it really gives you a just a, a sense of the space and a sense of like you were saying the vibes of of this sort of cyberpunk world really gets the set you really get the sense that this is you know you know even though it only takes place like what seven years in the future now like <laughs> yeah. it's it's simultaneously like a future that we can recognize because of how much of it appears to be flooded and also one that is totally alien because of just how strange and over manufactured the entire world around them is yeah, that that that's an amazing sequence, and I talked on uh, War in the Pocket cast of how I, I love Golden Era animation's depiction of rain, and this is this is another absolutely lovely E one where we just get when it starts, we just get these ripples slowly appearing on the surface, and then suddenly it's downpour, and you've got all these ripples sort of going into each other and the craft of that is just like the moment you start thinking about it your brain just goes oh god how did you figure that out dance is probably just copying something but nevertheless <laughs> it, it, it it there's there's this moment of disbelief that it's acting so naturally and it, it's i love those moments and it's 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 a very Oshi thing as well. He 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 do, wrote, he has a lot of motifs he he likes to use. Like the other the other very Oshi thing is is the helicopter being going around a, a building and it's refl- being reflected in the windows and yeah uh, and the obviously the low flying jet. He he loves to, <laughs> loves a nice low flying jet. Yeah, um, yeah. He likes to have military hardware. Re- in reflected surfaces that's definitely <laughs> yeah. one of his one of his things that he likes <laughs> the man d- just likes drawing a tank twice yep, yep. what can we say <laughs> or he likes to get some underpaid uh, intern to do it for him <laughs> that seems like a, a a good point to, to talk about the fact that this has obviously spawned a lot of other works mm-hmm Maybe the, the 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 one we should like very quickly address first is is innocence. That was a film where I think Oshi really embraced newer techniques like CG in particular. But it was him making full the transition from cells to Photoshop and all that comes with that in terms of producing uh, an image. It was so finely detailed and sharp in a way that the old one wasn't and the the lighting in particular i remember from innocence like it is painterly light which i think a lot of works a lot of high production animation has where some artist is deciding exactly where the the light goes is is picking it precisely to paint the scene they want and because they can they had have the tools to make that convincing you get these incredible scenes that i think we've lost to a certain degree as um cg animationists took over 
as something which is used to do the whole of a scene because people have come to want realistic light rather than a, a more painterly one. And I think Ghost in a Shell Innocence is visually at least um, really interesting in that it's kind of this, height of, uh, this heightened reality, this painterly reality. Mm-hmm. I also think it's even more obfuscated and even more... Uh, talky and th- talky thinky <laughs> than uh, uh, the ri- the original Ghost in the Shell. Mm-hmm. Um, I not. Do you feel like it? It's this first step where they stop asking questions and they start repeating old themselves a bit. One of Ghost in the Shell, the the franchise's problems is that even more so than Star Wars, it became a show about itself rather than the things it was originally about, and yeah. like everything almost is either, you know, repeating the movie or repeating the manga in some way. Um, I like Innocence, you know, just as a, a minor quibble, is this, it's the first, it's the only thing that gets adapted to screen where they're confident enough to let the major not be the main character and to have actually, yeah. like, allow that story to progress. Uh, but yeah, like you were saying, it is much more heavy-handed in its philosophizing. And also, like, the like the... The uh, like the story itself is also much more sort of obfuscated, like you were saying. So, like yeah, like it, it's, a lot of it is just Oshi's just yeah. kind of like a feeling himself technically, and and yeah, like I I I probably like it more than the average anime fan does. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like I, I it, it's it's almost impossible to top the original. Yeah. Maybe we just haven't watched it ten times yet, Jeff. <laughs> maybe in that's true. Just another decade, and and maybe <laughs> maybe our opinion of it will rise. Uh, speaking of which, um, we've we've got obviously got Ghost in the Shell: Arise and Standalone Complex, the the two traditionally animated uh, derivative series, is, um, which are two separate timelines mm-hmm. in upon themselves. Um, and then we have uh, 2045, the latest um, continuation of the standalone complex uh, timeline, um, which we will get to. Yeah. Uh, believe you me, listener, um, there are going to be words said about uh, 2045. Um, I think it is a shame Ben isn't here because he he loves standalone complex. And I, I think think you're you're. You are similarly fond of it. Uh, yeah, like, I don't know if I've gone into it to the depth that he has, but I that is one of like I've I've had sort of like eras of anime watching, and like the second or third time I got into anime, it was specifically because of Standalone Complex. We talked earlier about how this movie very much moved away from being interested in the intricacies of the plot to ask questions, whereas I think Standalone Complex made the plot and the intricacies and the interactions of that far more central. It was, mm. it was similarly humorless. I think, I think it still didn't really bring much of that in from the comics. Yeah. It, it injected some goofiness with the Tachikomas. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, I will admit that yeah. I do goddamn love the Tachikomas. They are <laughs> the single best thing about the franchise apart from this film. Yeah. Like, if 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 there was we got nothing but Tachikomas as derivative works, I would be happy because they they are just <laughs> they are little they are they are basically mini spider tanks who uh, well, I think they call, call call them something like brain tanks. No, think tanks. They yeah. they're called think tanks. They are basically these uh, the, the, as their name suggests. They're these sentient tanks. They are completely these innocent souls who are incredibly inquisitive that inquisitiveness allows they're asking the questions we we want to ask so mm-hmm. they're they're they're, in, they're not quite an audience surrogate but in a weird way they are because is they are always the ones who want to know the the goss and want and they're there they go just like cheering everyone on just like you are mm-hmm I've boiled down an entire complicated franchise to happy little robots, but <laughs> I do lo- I do love the Tachikomas. They are just yeah. The wonderful thing about Tachikomas is Tachikomas are wonderful things. <laughs> yeah, and then there was a rise, which I will admit I saw the first episode of, and never really felt compelled to go back to it because the least interesting thing about Ghost in the Shell is the prequel matter. Uh, we are told that Major Kusanagi was a full prosthetic cyborg from a very, very young age. She doesn't remember being human. And so 
Arise is like, well, wow, how about we'll find out what happened to her? And basically, it's like all bad prequels. You basically invert everybody's personality and then you try and figure out how they get to the point where you recognize them again. And mm. I just didn't really like it. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think that's necessarily unfair. It's, it's, I think it was reasonably successful, but no, never quite as successful as they wanted, which is why they, they came back to the, the standalone complex when they decided to make a CG um, uh, sequel, which we've talked about 2045's first half in depth and about the beginning of the new season. And I, th I th we will very much say more soon, but... Mm. It is something where, as you say, this has begun to eat itself. Yeah, it is. It is my very hot take that I'll expand upon later is that it is basically fan fiction. Um, <laughs> it is just hitting all the things that, hey, you remember without really seemingly any deep understanding or appreciation for anything beyond the chrome of Ghost in the Shell. And just instead of, you know, one thing that is remarkable about standalone or about Ghost in the Shell is that the action scenes are very, are very subdued. Like there is, there is not really a bombastic gunfight. Like what happens is like quick, brutish, and short. Whereas in Arise, there's or in uh, Forty Five, I'm sorry, just these interminably long, pointless gunfights with people you don't understand or care about, and with no depth behind it whatsoever. You know, it was like, hey, you ever heard of 1984? Wouldn't it be fucked up if the, the, a yeah. guy did something with that? I wonder, in a strange way, if it's actually the most faithful in tone to the orig original manga. Like, I think there's a, a tendency that when something has so much stuff, they'll start going, okay, well, we've split from the... Um, the f previously animated ones. What what's our core document now? Okay, maybe it's maybe it's the original manga, and maybe we want we because it's definitely something which I don't think its humor lands a lot of the time, but it is trying to be funny. Yeah, like that it can be painfully easy trying to do so at times. But and it, it once again it has even more doll like major, and an even more or hench bato and, and like it's it's going to even more elemental designs like the fan fiction is not a bad word it's making them more what they originally were without any any subtlety yeah. uh but yeah we're, we're, we're dunking on it a bit too much now i think <laughs> i think i think we've reached a point where we will we can't say too much otherwise we we repeating ourselves <laughs> yeah we will be repeat we'll be mere ghosts compared to the cold fury of ben which <laughs> everyone else will get to experience soon yep and on that note yeah um do you have any favorite bits that you want to talk about before before we go um once again it would go into shots i uh, it's like uh i really like um when we get symmetry in animation like uh, how uh when she's swimming in the sea it, it mirrors the opening sequence as she the flotation device kicks in and she's going back towards the surface that that mirrors the the birth we see we see in the, the opening sequence and i like at the end when her the, the torso of the puppet master and the, the major's torso are like laying out on top of this tank and their, their, their heads are both like tilted to each other and the, and the puppet master themselves talks about trying to find a mirror to see themselves in because they, they have no sense of what they they are and I, I like I very much like that imagery and for, my, for myself I think a, a, a favourite scene of mine which always brings a smile to my face is when the major is bullying Togusa about his uh, six shooter. He still has his uh, sidearm from when he was a beat cop. And she keeps telling him like, you need to get a, a different gun. That gun sucks. Like stop using that gun. And he's like, no, I, I like this guy. She's like, no, I'm relying on you to back me up. And if you, if you properly take care of it automatic, you don't have to worry about it uh, jamming. And, Later on, you know, he heroically, you know, drops in front of a moving car, leaps out of the way, loads up a little tracking bee, sinks it into the uh, the license plate and <laughs> as it drives off. And he's like, I got him. And he's like, you know, if you had an automatic, you could have put two or three in there. 
<laughs> they're like, stop bullying Togusa, God. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I like that that he they didn't try and like have him doesn't get a moment where he suddenly proves himself hyper competent that his his he, what he manages to do is okay I put a tag on it for the big guns to get it yeah. like that that's 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 his job and like he's he's satisfied and he's like yeah did my job well done me <laughs> and everyone's like well done there yeah yeah good job good job. It's really nice that there are moments which characterize all three of the key characters of Togusa, Bato, and, and the, the Major. Like, I think Innocent suffers from being almost all Bato and then a little bit of the Major. And just as the Major says about Section 9, I think this show benefits from having that mix. Mm-hmm. That's, I think that's, I think that more or less the wraps us up. Um, is the next episode the end of the season? Yes, indeed. Next is end of season. Okay. Um, so join us for that. And in the meantime, you can email us at keyframespodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at keyframespod. Like us on Facebook at keyframespodcast. And rate, rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Say goodbye, Duncan. Am I not supposed to tell a friend, Jeff? Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> tell a friend. But not just any friend, Jeff. Tell a, tell a friend who thinks, wow, cool robot body. <laughs> Say goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.